All right. So as I was saying, I love that song. One of the writers of that song, Matt Papa, was doing a special workshop a week and a half ago at Cedarville University, and Hannah, who was playing the guitar for us, got to go and be a part of that workshop. It's a special blessing. I was thankful that she could do that. Thankful for each of the folks who serve us on Sunday mornings leading our music. You guys are a real blessing to us. Let's pray. Father, as we come and we put ourselves under the authority of your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We know that you inspired it, that the the writers of scripture wrote what you wanted them to write. We know that it was not just for their first audience, but for all Christians in the 2,000 years since the completion of that New Testament. So we come as your children, as your people. We are eager to know what it is that you have for us from your word this morning. Help us to hear it, help us to understand it, help us to receive it, and do with it what you would have us do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you want to pull a Bible out and find Acts chapter 8, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 916. We are working through the book of Acts, and last week we talked about the idea of concentric circles of mission. So, For the first believers in Jesus, those concentric circles were labeled as Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So Jesus gave the Great Commission to his disciples, to us. He said, go make disciples of all nations. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the earth. And we talked about how that would be like saying Versailles, Dark County, maybe Western Ohio, and to the ends of the earth. Of the earth. Now, ideally, each church, each, say, small group in the church, each family and individual in a church should have some kind of connection to mission at those four levels, even if it's just a matter of sending money or praying for somebody who's way out in that end of the earth circle. God wants each of us to somehow be connected to those four layers. We looked at last week how the church in Jerusalem finally got out of their Jerusalem bubble. If we go to the next map, Matthew, they left Jerusalem, which was in like the county of Judea. They went into the county of Samaria to the city of Shechem. Galilee is the county area north of there. That's where Jesus and his disciples spent most of their time up there in Galilee. But between the Jews of Judea and the Jews of Galilee were the half-breed Samaritans. And the Samaritans and the Jews, they hated each other. They were arch rivals, far worse than any football rivalry. But we saw how God used violence and persecution committed against the church to scatter them out. And some of the disciples, particularly one guy named Philip, went to Samaria. And this is what we read, Acts 8 Four through eight. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. I love how that passage ends. So last week started with persecution, violence committed against Christians, which caused them to scatter, but they didn't just scatter and hide, they scattered and proclaimed the gospel, and last week's passage ends with, 
there was much joy in that city. An unexpected joy in a Samaritan city. That's how we ended last week. Now, for this week, a question for you. If you want to shout out your answer, you're welcome to. Who, in your opinion, is the greatest basketball player of all time? Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan? Anybody got somebody different? Kobe Bryant? Okay. Does anybody know what year Michael Jordan was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame? 2009. 2009, Michael Jordan was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. He spoke for 20 minutes in which he praised and lifted up and worshipped himself. He told a bunch of stories that made much of him. At one point, he seemed to realize that he had actually forgotten his family and so directed his attention to his family temporarily and then went back to how great he was. It's actually a very sad and, and pitiful speech. Like the crowd loved it. And people were shouting, you know, chanting his name and all that stuff. But to look at it years later, you're like, man, it's not right. It's not good. It was a speech clearly given by somebody who thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, and he wants the rest of the world to know it, and he deserves to be worshipped. Now, that same year, David Robinson was also inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. He spoke for seven minutes, and his speech was completely different. He said virtually nothing about himself made no comments about how great he is. He honored, very intentionally honored his wife. He praised and challenged each of his sons, and he thanked person after person after person who had helped him succeed. And at the end of his seven-minute speech, he, he summarized very quickly a story from Jesus' life where Jesus had healed 10 lepers of leprosy, and, and one of them humbled himself, came back, and thanked Jesus. And he's, he then thanked God for doing this in his life. I'd, I'd like you guys to see this one-minute clip from the end there. So go ahead and hit the video. I know there's still a lot of stuff I'm forgetting, but I'm just going to close. I'm going I'm to tell you the one thing that I'm, I was thinking the other day about a story uh, from the Bible is from Luke, uh, the 17th chapter. It was a story about 10 lepers that were healed by Jesus. And one of them came back and one of them fell on his knees before him and said, thank you and honored him and, and blessed him. And, and I just want to say thank you. God has followed me in my career and he has blessed me and he has strengthened me and he's encouraged me. And if anybody who knows me or anybody who has watched me, you have seen his hand in my life. And my prayer is that he will walk with you as he has walked with me all through my life. So thank you very much. Now that's a good way to give a speech for something like being inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Vody Bauckham is a pastor that I respect a lot, and he's the one that drew my attention to this. I wouldn't have known anything about it without him. But he's, he writes this, David elevated others. Mike elevated Mike. David honored his family. Mike honored himself. David was brief. Mike was indulgent. When, when Mike got up, he actually said, 
my plan was, and I told my friends, I was just going to get up and say thank you and then walk off. And then he spoke for 23 minutes. David honored God. Mike honored basketball. David sees his legacy in his family. Mike sees his legacy in his highlights. And then he says this, Modern American sports serve as an incubator for the self-centeredness that resides in each of us. We all have it, and when you put it in an incubator, it grows and it gets stronger. The better one performs, the harder it is to avoid the big head. David Robinson is far from perfect. I'm sure he has many flaws, foibles of faults as the rest of us. However, for seven minutes, he represented his team, his family, and his Lord very well. And he showed us all how attractive humility and grace can be. I hope that we would be more like David and less like Mike in that. Now, today... We're going to deal with a part of Scripture that tells us a little more about that Mike side of things. There is in each of us a desire to be great, to be looked up to, to be respected, to be honored. If we're really honest down in our hearts, we want to be worshipped. We want people to think as highly of ourselves as we think of ourselves. And we love great people because they show us what we could hopefully become. There were a couple times during Mike's 23-minute speech that somebody in the crowd would just shout something out. I have no idea what it was. He couldn't understand it. But, you know, this is an expensive, formal event, and somebody who's probably normally very respected and restrained, he just can't hold it in any longer. He just, he loves the greatness of Mike, and he has to shoot, shout something out. And that is an act of worship that all of us are prone to. Jesus, though, had a very upside-down way of looking at things. When he picked his first guys who were going to be the leaders of the church, like the kingdom of God on earth is the church. And the guys he picks to lead it, none of us would have picked them. They were just regular dudes. There was nothing, nothing particularly impressive about any of them. They, they didn't have the right family names. They didn't have the right schooling. They didn't have the right credentials. They were just regular guys. And yet Jesus picked them and built his church with them. Today we're picking up our story where that early church led by these regular guys has just been scattered out, thousands of baby Christians, people who have just weeks before come to faith in Christ, are now running for their lives and trying to proclaim the gospel. Like, how much do they know at this point? How, how can they articulate the, the story of the gospel? Or is it fresh enough that it just comes flowing out of them? Or are they scared like many of us would be? But they're, they're scattered. They've gone to the Samaritan neighbors, the hated neighbors, the arch rivals. And Philip has been leading Samaritans to faith in Christ left and right. But now we get introduced to a villain, and a dark cloud forms over joyful Samaria. So again, this is Acts chapter 8. We're going to read 9 through 25. It's on page 916 if you're in a pew Bible. But there was a man named Simon. This is not Simon Peter. This is different Simon. Who had previously practiced magic in the city and was amazed and had amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was 
somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. They had paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So we're told that Simon is a magician. This is not like a stage musician or illusionist. He's not pulling rabbits out of a hat. He is practicing what we could call the dark arts. Black magic, magic with a K at the end. Other names for it today would be witchcraft, the craft, Wicca, paganism, neo-paganism, and the occult. It seeks to manipulate and control the world or control nature through mysterious spiritual powers. The Bible tells us that this is real, and that it is empowered by demons, fallen angels who had rebelled against God. Now, there was a lot of money to be had and a lot of power to be had if you could pull off this magician gig well. And apparently Simon was good at it. Everybody was, ama- was amazed at him, and he was raking in the dough and the influence. The whole city stood in awe of him. And of course, you got to spend a fortune to make a fortune, right? He was used to shelling out lots of money for books and scrolls and secrets from other practitioners, and you just you collect more recipes and stuff so you can do more things. And he knew that there was a cost that went with becoming greater. And that pattern is going to end up causing him a problem later in this chapter. We have no idea how much he spent. We have no idea how much he was bringing in. But we know that the profession that he was in produced a lot for the practitioners. If you turned all the way to the book of Acts chapter 19, you would see a group of these same kind of guys, professional magicians, black arts practitioners, who in the city of Ephesus were, were so convicted by the preaching of Paul, they decided to burn all of their books and scrolls and things. They were, we're turning away completely from our old life. We're turning completely to Christ, and so we're just going to burn all of that evil stuff that was displeasing to God. And Acts chapter 19 tells us that that, that pile of books was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. So I did the math today, and that works out to about $11 million today. Big pile of books, not burned because they're like banned books or anything crazy like that, but just, I own this. It is displeasing to God, and so I'm going to throw it on the fire. $11 million. Amazing. Simon was good at what he did. Luke tells us that he amazed the people. They couldn't understand or explain what he did because it wasn't just tricks. It was supernaturally empowered dark arts. Everybody respected him. Everybody feared him, and everybody paid attention to him. He even went by a title that was straight up blasphemous. We were just told that he was referred to as, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, as the ESV translators, as they translated that from Greek into English, they made an editorial choice to capitalize great, to link it. They're saying the original language is trying to show us that he is equated with the power of God. So they're not just 
in town saying, wow, this man has amazing power from God. They're saying he is the power of God. He's like, I'll take that title. I like that. I like people considering me equal to the power of God. What has to be going on in someone's heart to receive a title like that? Such arrogance. But then Philip shows up, and he's proclaiming the gospel, the good news that everybody, regardless of background, regardless of profession, regardless of schooling, regardless of how evil their sin is, can have new life, eternal life in Christ Jesus through repentance and faith. He shows up, he's proclaiming the gospel. It's the opposite of everything that they've been believing in town. It's the opposite of what they've been practicing. And Simon has been practicing. They've been relying on power, on religious rituals and right knowledge and secret knowledge in his books and all that stuff and spiritual manipulation and their own performance. They've been relying on all of that, hoping that somehow it would make them right with God. But Philip proclaimed the gospel, the good news, that none of that is going to work, but there's a much better way. He cut through that confusion and deception, and just imagine them hearing this for the first time, that, that Jesus, the guy who had visited their village a couple years earlier, we talked about that last week, the woman at the well, Jesus reveals to her her secrets that she thought she was keeping from him, and she realized this man is not just a man, this is God in the flesh, and she went and told everybody in the city that she found the Christ. Two years later, Philip comes back and he says, remember that guy that I was here with? He was, he was God in the flesh, and he died on a cross taking your sins, and maybe that woman is still in the crowd, taking your sins, all of that infidelity, takes it on himself, dies on the cross for your sin. This is such good news for these people. They don't, they don't have to trick and, and worm their way into acceptance from God. They don't have to try to manipulate. They don't have to know the secret dark knowledge. They can freely come to the God who loves them because that God paid the price and offers them forgiveness and eternal sin. Just amazing. There's no magic. There's no secret knowledge. There's no paying your way into the kingdom. Eternal life is a free gift given by grace and received through faith. When they heard this gospel message, they responded with great joy. That was our last verse of last week. They eagerly believed and they were baptized into the church. Surprisingly, that included Simon. Verse 12, but when they believed... Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Simon, the main impressive dark arts guy in town, hears the gospel, sees the miracles that Philip is doing. We saw last week a He's healing people. He's casting demons out. Simon watches Philip do this, and he realizes Philip is the real deal. This is not a trick. This is not a stage show. Philip has some kind of 
spiritual, supernatural power. He hears the message of the gospel, and we're told right here that he believes and he is baptized. But it turns out it's not a real conversion. Simon is still lost. That's going to become clear as we go further down the passage here. So Simon, a bunch of other people, they're all professing faith in Christ. They're being baptized. Imagine as they they send a messenger back to the apostles who are still in, in Jerusalem. Guess what? We're in Samaria. And hundreds, thousands of Samaritans are coming to faith in Christ. We can't believe it. You have to come see what's going on. And the apostles are like, this is amazing. And we know Jesus mentioned the Samaritans, and he appeared to love the Samaritans, but to think that he's going to save the Samaritans, that, just can't imagine that. And so Peter and John go travel to Samaria and check it out. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem had heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've, if you've studied, if you've thought much, if you've read much about the Holy Spirit, you recognize there is a significant controversy brewing in those few verses there, right? We believe and, and we teach that when you become a Christian, when you are born again, the Spirit of God is coming and dwelling inside of you permanently, never to leave you. And yet what we just read here is showing us a different timeline, right? We got people hearing the gospel, responding in faith, being baptized, no Holy Spirit. Peter and John show up, pray for them, lay their hands on them, whammo, Holy Spirit comes in them. What are we to make of that? In order to understand this, we have to recognize this as a specific and unique moment in history. The normal way of operating throughout the last 2,000 years of Christian history is when you become born again, the Spirit comes to live inside of you. But God is doing something very specific here. So just like when the, the first disciples, when they're told to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come, it's not like they're not Christians. They're not born again until Pentecost when the Spirit comes. No, the Bible doesn't tell us that at all. We are meant to believe that they are in Christ, even as they wait for the Spirit. Then the Spirit falls very dramatically on the day of Pentecost. That was the initial outpouring of the Spirit on that group of Jewish Christians. Would God do the same thing? Would, would the Spirit of God dwell in a Samaritan who is also claiming to be a Christian? the arch enemies of the Jewish people. And so God waits, he pauses, he brings Peter and John, the two head guys of the church, and they pray and they see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears as the Spirit is poured out on the Samaritans and they have to come to the conclusion that God has welcomed these enemies into the family and they are now brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not about the individual Samaritans. Like, 
You come to faith in Christ today, the Spirit comes to live inside of you. It's this individual moment. This is about a new chapter in history where it's not just Jewish people who can become Christians, it's the Samaritan people also who can become Christians. And God times it so that there's no question in the minds of those Jewish Christian apostles, and there's no question in the mind of the Samaritans that these two rival groups are now united in Christ. That's the point of waiting. Later in Acts, the same thing will happen when that circle widens to include all Gentiles. Gentiles will hear the gospel, they'll come to faith in Christ, and there'll be this pause. Apostles will show up, pray for them, the Spirit will be poured out to them, again, so that both sides of that divide, enemies for centuries, will recognize the Spirit is uniting them together. Specific unique moments in history. God's blowing the church wide open. But back to our story. Simon, he he sees how God the Holy Spirit is, is poured out on these people through the prayers and the laying hands of the apostles. And then his still corrupt heart comes through. And he tries to buy the ability to perform this magic trick. He's been doing this his whole life. Somebody else in another town has a better incantation, a better book, a better scroll. He spends the money. He gets the knowledge. He can now do it himself. And so he just continues in that pattern. Verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands... He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Simon's a rich dude. His magic gig has been really good for him. He's bought many books, many secrets. He's like, Name your price, guys. Whatever it is, I need the ability to do this, because this is far beyond anything I have ever seen before. He thinks he can buy, essentially, a, a license to distribute the Holy Spirit. Buy a franchise in the spirit distribution business. He's thinking of the spirit as an it, as a force, as a commodity, as something that he could control and distribute. We know the spirit is actually a he. God, the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity. And you don't, you don't buy God. You don't buy a license to distribute God to people. You don't buy the ability to control when God does what. He's so off base here. Is he, is he simply misunderstanding? I mean, he's, this is blowing the circuits in his mind. He's never seen anything like this. Maybe you've found yourself sometimes thinking the same kind of line. You've, you've hoped that if you, if you give to the church, if you give to a ministry, if you give to somebody in need, that that'll earn you points with God. Sometimes hucksters actually say this out loud. If you send in $100, God will bless you and he'll do what you want him to do. Right? Bogus. But there's this thing inside of us that thinks... 
maybe I can get what I want if I, if I give a little more. Maybe, maybe I can achieve a rank in the church. Maybe I can get my way in the church. Maybe I can become great like Simon. Some of us, we've, we've struggled with this temptation. Others, maybe we haven't. Our, our church has changed a lot over the years. If we go back decades before I got here, there was a, a season in our church where there were, some, there were some big, great people, and they wanted to control things. And if, if they weren't listened to, they were going to pull their giving. They were going to pull their attendance. They were going to manipulate and control that way. It's, it's why, we, why we have a mortgage today. Years ago, when we did the renovation here, our, this before I got here, the church did a pledge campaign, and some people who had pledged a lot of money didn't get what they wanted, so they said, I'm not playing my, paying my pledge. And we had to pay, the work was already started, right? We had to, we had to get a mortgage. Still have that today. It's sin. It's got a name. It's called simony because it's named after Simon. The, the sin of trying to buy favor with God, buy influence in God's people, buy respect or fear from the people of God, it's called simony. Now, I would hope that you would not want to be a part of a church that says, the more you give, the more we listen to you. certainly don't want to pastor a situation like that. God chooses the weak, and the lowly, and the unimpressive, even as he chooses them to lead his church today. Aren't you glad that the church is different than the rest of the world? Where it's not what your degree is, not how much you can give or how important, amazing you are, but rather it's who has God chosen to be the leader. But Simon didn't know that. Of course he didn't know that. He's, he's meeting the church for the first time. He didn't know it. And, and so can we cut him some slack? Like he just, He's just doing what he's always done, and yet... Peter is not going to cut him slack. I would say, man, if, if you want to like buy influence in the church, then, then go somewhere that calls itself a church but is really just a, a function of the world, right? That could make you offended. But imagine the offense of this. When Peter says so much stronger words, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. This is how we know that this, this belief, this baptism has not been accompanied with a true conversion. His heart is not right before God. When, when he says at the beginning there, may your silver perish with you, 
One, one commentator says, look, if we were writing this today, we would use more colorful language. We would say, to hell with you and your money. That's what Peter is saying. How, how offensive is that, right? Like, this is a joyous moment. People are coming to faith in Christ. The church is growing, baptizing a bunch of people. And, and Peter just looked this guy in the face and, may you perish with your soul. He's not talking about physical death. A few chapters ago, Ananias and Sapphira, you remember those guys? They tried to fool the church and they dropped dead. But that doesn't happen to Simon. Simon goes on, he lives a long life. There's church historical accounts and a whole bunch of legends about things that Simon did for the rest of his life, never actually come into faith in Christ. Peter's not saying you're going to drop dead like like Ananias and Sapphira. He's talking about the spiritual state of this man named Simon. He is lost. He is still dead in his sins. He is not right with God. Why does he say this? He says, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. I don't think he's saying that choice condemns you. I think it's more of that's the fruit that's coming from the root of the fact that he's spiritually dead. He's heard the good news. He says, I like this. I can have eternal life in Christ if I believe in him. That is good news. I will take that. But I'm not going to turn away from who I was. That's faith without repentance. It doesn't save. So you can... You can claim to be a Christian and not be one. You can be a leader in the church and not be one. You can be a pastor and not be a Christian. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. They must go together. Repentance is turning away from your self-ruled life, you on the throne, Faith is turning towards Christ, Him on the throne. You can't have one without the other. We see this in verse 22. Peter goes on, Repent therefore for this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Simon, your faith is not coupled with repentance. The root is still poisoned. You have no life in Christ. You must repent. You must turn around. You must forsake your old life where you are the king and you must trust in the kingship of Jesus. There's a book that we as elders have started reading, and right in the beginning of the book, there's this really helpful description of two rival ideas of the gospel, and it really stood out to John this last week, and he was talking about it, and I thought, that fits in really well here, so I want to share this with you guys right now. I'm going to share it as a chart, so this comes from a book by Jonathan Lehman. What we've got on our chart is we've got gospel one and gospel two, and I'm going to show you the difference between gospel one and gospel two by uh, adding the text and then coloring the text. So gospel one says this, God is holy. We have all sinned, separating us from God. 
But God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. Excellent news. Now, if we go to Gospel 2, we have the same words, and at the end we add, and begin to follow the Son as King and Lord. This is the idea of, it's not simply getting your ticket punched so that you can get to heaven someday, but that your life right now is changed. You are following Jesus. He's not just your Savior. He's your Lord and your Master and your King. Next statement, Gospel 1. Everyone who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. See how this is different. Gospel 2. Anyone who, I'm sorry, anyone who repents and believes can have eternal life, a life which begins today and stretches into eternity. So again, we've got this, is Jesus the ruler of your life right now? Or are you just hoping for eternity with him? And the entrance into this is not simply one side of the coin, faith, but the other side of the coin, Repentance. Next one, Gospel 1. We're not justified by works. Gospel 2. We're not justified by works. It's an easy one. It means we can't get ourselves right with God by anything that we do, no matter how impressive we are. Gospel 1. We're justified by faith alone. You've heard me say that so many times, but here's the understanding. We're justified by faith alone, but faith which works, or faith that's effective, is never alone. It's always got the other side of it, that repentance side of faith. The gospel, therefore, calls all people to just believe. Or, the gospel, therefore, calls all people to repent and believe. Those are two very different calls. One gives a false sense of security. Simon believed. Simon was baptized. Simon was lost. Simon refused to repent. Last statement. An unconditionally loving God will take you as you are. Or, a contra-conditionally loving God will take you contrary to what you deserve. So unconditional love, as people use it here, would be like, God loves you no matter what, so it doesn't matter what you've done. He's just welcoming you into the family. You are forgiven. You're good. What the second gospel is trying to communicate is, it's, it's not this blind, uh, reckless, foolish kind of unconditional love, but it's a contra-conditional love, where God sees clearly the condition of your heart and rebellion against him, and yet... He chooses to love and save you contrary to what is true. And that is a whole lot better than a blind, conditional love. So a contra-conditionally loving God will take you contrary to what you deserve and then enable you by the power of the Spirit to become holy and obedient like His Son. Now, when, you, when you're glorified in heaven, you're going to be completely holy and obedient like His Son. But... If you are in Christ, you should be progressing through towards greater Christ-likeness your whole life. It's not just getting that ticket to heaven. It's becoming more like Christ. It's submitting more and more of your life to Christ as you grow. And that is central to understanding the true gospel. By reconciling you to himself, 
Notice it's him that does the reconciling, not us. God also reconciles you to his family, the church, and enables you as his people to represent together his own holy character and triune God. So it's not just a, about us, a, a single person kind of thing. It's about us as a church together, united with each other, representing God as we grow in holiness and Christ-like. Now, you might be fighting against this. Right? You might be pulling out John 3.16 so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. And it doesn't say anything about repentance in John 3.16. And so how could we stack something onto this like repentance? Is this legalism? Is this, is this making a requirement that the Bible does not make? No. Jesus himself very clearly, right in the beginning of Mark, says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. He links them together right there at the beginning of his ministry. And they are linked to the rest of the New Testament. Simon has believed, but Simon has not repented. Simon is lost. Peter says to Simon that he's caught in the gall of bitterness weird thing to say, and the bond of iniquity. No, iniquity is sin. So he's saying you're, a, you're in bondage. You are a slave to sin. You, you are not a new creation in Christ yet, Simon. You have not been set free. You have not been forgiven. You are still a slave to sin. And he says, therefore, therefore repent. That's the solution for Simon. The same solution for us. If, if you're caught in bitterness, you just you refuse to forgive your spouse. You for, refuse to be in relationship with that person who said something that, that made you mad. You, you refuse to, what, whatever it is, you're bitter towards somebody or you're bitter towards life or you're bitter towards God or you're trapped in your sin. You can't get out. It's, it's got you captive. And no matter what you do, it's, just, it's like you're out of control. The, the answer to that for Simon and the answer to that for us is repentance turning away from us as the ruler of our lives, turning towards Christ as the ruler of our lives. He says, Simon, repent, repent and pray to God so that maybe God will forgive you. Is Simon willing to do that? 24. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He is unwilling to do it. Right? Imagine, you've seen the amazing power of God to the point that you cannot deny that this, this is supernaturally empowered uh, Peter and Philip and, and John. And they say to you, here is the way to life. Here's how you can be made new in Christ. Here's how you can be set free from your bitterness, set free from your bondage to sin. Repent and pray to God and ask him to forgive you. And you respond with, no thank you. Would you pray for me instead? He refuses to do it. He knows he's in need, but he refuses to do what the guy said. Instead, he He's like, I, I, I'm too scared of God. Would you stand between me and God? Would you pray for me so that none of this happens to me? Now, Peter, it's not recorded for us. 
in here, but Peter could have gone off on a sermon and say, there, there's only one mediator between man and God, and that's Christ Jesus. You don't need me in between you and God. You have Jesus. He is that mediator. I don't know if he said that to him or not later in the New Testament. Simon is essentially here refusing to repent, and he's putting his faith in Peter instead of in Christ, and so he continues to be lost. He was so close. So close. He believed. He'd been baptized. He'd been welcomed into the church, and yet he was still lost. And then Peter, with just clarity and simplicity, like, like a surgeon with a scalpel, makes the cut, says, you're on this side of the line. You need to be on this side of the line. Repentance gets you across. And he says, I'm Thanks, Peter. I'm not interested, but would you please pray for me? It's so sad. He was so close. And if history, historical accounts are to be believed, he never stepped over that line. And he went to his grave and perished just like his silver. But that's not quite the end of the story. As sad as that is, Simon goes off and does whatever Simon does. But Peter and John have now seen with their eyes that God is saving the Samaritans, and they immediately go on mission to tell other Samaritans the gospel. Verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to the many villages of the Samaritans. So they're on their way back to Jerusalem, but they're going to stop at all these villages on the way preaching the gospel, something that they... They knew they were supposed to be doing, because Jesus said do it. But until the persecution, they refused to leave Jerusalem. And they would not have believed that Jesus was saving the Samaritans unless they had seen the Holy Spirit fall with their own eyes. And now they, they're completely convinced. And so they go to village after village of their former arch rivals. And they say, let me tell you how you can be my brother or sister in Christ. Let me tell you the gospel good news, how Jesus can save you. That's a turning point in history right there. That next turning point where it's open to all Gentiles, all non-Jewish people, that's where we're welcomed in. But man, the door is cracking open right now. Jesus is not just the Savior of this one nation, this one people, the Jewish people. He is the Savior also of the hated neighbors, the Samaritans. And that is good news for us. The love of God is far bigger than one nation. Now, he chose one nation. He worked through that nation. It is still that nation which is a special chosen people for God. But the love of God extends out even to us. Each one of us in this room is, without Jesus, we are just as lost as Simon. And yet, if we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, we are just as saved as Peter, John, Philip, Samaritans who heard the news, the, the Jewish Christians who are scattered because of the persecution. We are welcomed in because of that love of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these verses, and uh, 
the tragic story of Simon. Lord, may that not be true of us. Lord, would you work in the hearts of anybody here who is yet stuck in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. Lord, may they know and receive the truth that it is the free gift of grace by faith received through that double-sided coin of belief and repentance that, that brings people into new life. Lord, for those who are trying to still earn their way in, would you convince them of the truth that that's futile? For those who are, are full of pride and are thinking that they're better than others and deserve more respect or even fear of others, would you, would you humble them, Lord, and, and let them see that if they're anything, it's because of you. Lord, for those of us who years ago we came to new life through repentance of faith and it's, it's kind of grown old to us and maybe we're not even amazed by it as we read this story here, Lord, would you help us to remember just how lost we were? Would you show us the reality of our hearts that if it was not for you, we would be Simon? I pray, Lord, that as we get ready to celebrate communion, as we remember your great sacrifice, your your selfless act of love for us, that that we would remember that, that we would proclaim that, and that as we sing our last song, we would marvel at the love that you have bestowed upon us. So work in us, Lord, in this next minute or two as we reflect on your love, on your sacrifice, and we get ready to remember that and proclaim it through communion. In Jesus' name.